Sidewalks is an annual pop-up storytelling ideas and literature festival run by the Centre for Stories. On 9th of October 2021, the third iteration of Sidewalks took over Perth and Northbridge with a curated whirlwind of talks, performances and readings. Special thanks to the sponsors that made Sidewalks possible in 2021. The Department of Local Government, Sport and Cultural Industries, Centre for Stories Founder Circle, Rainer Real Estate and Aspen Corporate Financial Planning. Thanks also to our in-kind venue partners for the City Block, Randall Humich and St George's Cathedral. This recording is from Still Got It, a conversation with Sasonke Musimang, Caroline Wood and Jane Den Hollander about women and ageing. So this is the final event for the City Block. Um, and I don't want to pick favourites. I haven't no, I haven't had any updates of what the Northbridge block is experiencing, but I think we're the favourite. I think we're the cool block. Um, we're the city block. And we are joined by Sisonke, the one and only. We all know why we're here. <laughs> Look at this. This amazing face we get to see on TV and everywhere else in the world. Um, and then but we've also got some more uh, beautiful faces as well. In the middle we have Jane um, and we've got Caroline, of course. We, we all know and love Caroline, don't we? Let's give a round of applause for these beautiful ladies. And the tight and Simone Flavel sends her apologies in case you're wondering why there isn't a fourth person here. She's not invisible. She just couldn't make it and that's okay. We will miss her. Um, the title of this event is Still Got It. It's one of my favourite titles and it's a defiant celebration of women and ageing. I'd like to introduce Sisonke, who will be facilitating this conversation. Sisonke, as you know, is an author and storyteller. She was a recipient of the 2020 West Australian Writers Fellowship and is the head storytelling trainer at Centre for Stories. So let's, I'm going to pass this over to you and then I'll see you guys at the end. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Thanks, Richard. Hi everyone, it's fantastic to have such a great turnout. I want to um, start by acknowledging that we are meeting on Noongar Buja and that we have this incredible opportunity to share stories in a place that is so rich with stories for such a long time. Um, I want to acknowledge uh, the Noongar elders, um, past and present, um, and to, to give my thanks to the incredible generosity of the many members of the Noongar community who, um, in spite of everything, have been and continue to be so gracious uh, with our presence um, uh, on their country. So, <laughs> hi Jane, hi Caroline. Hi. Um, I'm going to start by introducing these two um, incredibly accomplished women, and then we're going to try to have a conversation about a style and fashion and whether any of it really matters and why we're having a conversation about it with women and whether this conversation would work if there were men sitting here instead. So... Let's start with the introductions before we get into the substance. <laughs> Professor Jane Den Hollander Ao was Vice Chancellor of Deakin University from 2010 until 2019, Interim Vice Chancellor of UWA, a brave woman, um, in 2020. 
2019, she received an Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to Tertiary Education and was named in the Victorian Honour Roll for Women. Jane has done significant work to ensure equal opportunity for learners and working women, as well as working to better enable the arts in regional communities. She um, has served in a number of capacities on a range of boards, um, and most importantly, she is the chair of our board at the Center for Stories. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. Caroline Wood has held senior management positions at UWA, has served on the boards of Amnesty International Australia, Small Publishers Network, Margaret River Augusta Tourism Association. She was the chair of Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. She's the co-founder of, of Margaret River Press. Um, most importantly, she's my boss. And anyone who you can, can believe anybody can boss us. Anyone who can boss me <laughs> is pretty damn bossy. <laughs> and most importantly, pretty damn boss. So welcome, Caroline. Thank you, Sisonke. So as I began to say in the sort of intro to frame this conversation, I think it would be difficult to imagine this conversation as a conversation amongst men for various reasons. Most importantly, um, you know, if I think about, like, would we be having a conversation about whether or not Mick Jagger still's got it? Does he still have it? Did he ever have it? <laughs> These are the questions. Um, and of course, you know, the, the underlying thing here is that for men, looks don't matter, right? Um, and for women, we continue to live in a society in which looks really matter far too much. So I want to begin with a question about whether you think it's healthy to care so much about how we look. Is there still a space for that, given the work that both of you have done on gender equity, on advancing women's place in this society, blah, 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 blah. Which is not to say we won't talk about it, but I want to start us with like a little bit of a reality check. Jane, why don't you take the question first? Well, I've always liked shiny things from when I was two. So I don't know if it's genetic. I, I, I'm married to a husband who's a geneticist and he'd probably say that's nonsense. I've always loved clothes and have liked style. The, those things matter to me. I notice I have a daughter who's very similar and I have a husband and a son who give not a toss and will wear the most peculiar things together because they pick them up. And so I, I don't know whether there is something built into who women are and why it, whether it goes back to the 90,000 years of evolution we've had where we, of course, Sasanke, choose our partners. Many people think it's men who choose women and, of course, it's the other way around. It's the girls who choose the boys and, um, and we just like to look nice. Look at this beautiful jacket that an ex-colleague of mine is wearing and why wouldn't you wear that? So... So I don't take, um, I think what you wear matters and why you wear it matters more and how you feel about what you wear really, really matters and can cover off some of the things that people have. It can give you confidence. Mm. If I dress in a certain way, I'm more confident than, you know, I would never stand up in a work situation in thongs because I wouldn't feel tall enough. I would definitely wear a heel. Now, the heel gives me one inch, but I feel taller. Go figure. I, I like this idea of it's not uh, that you care about what you wear because of the reason. I'm, I'm interested in that. And, and I'd like to hear your take on that, Caroline, about 
whether or not, one, you think we should care so much, uh, and two, the extent to which this is a gendered issue. I don't think we should care so much, but I do care. Having grown up in a household with seven sisters, um, and... And being the youngest, so she really had to care. um, And I think for us, um, growing up, I guess, in the Indian community, how we dress mattered because it showed your status. Um, And it mattered greatly to my parents. And I think my style comes from my dad, um, less so than my mum. My mum having to bring up nine children because I had one brother, um, you know, didn't have time to kind of think too much about her appearance, but she did care about making sure that her children always looked good. So I think in that sense, for me, style does matter. Matters to me. It doesn't worry me whether it matters to anyone else. And it doesn't matter to me how people perceive me, but it matters greatly to me. And what what about it matters to you? Like what? It, so Jane, your your thing about having that heel and just giving you a, a little bit of a a, a a sense of of confidence is that what's at play for you, Caroline? That yeah. that yeah, it definitely gives me confidence, and I guess also confidence in who I am and confidence in the place that I occupy in the space. So the particular way in which I think this conversation is also gendered is because of the age of the women that we all are sitting on this uh, panel because I think if you um, so both the age the women on this panel are but also clearly our um, sexual orientation and the way we think about our gender right and so the notion of looks being in some ways related to attraction and attraction being automatically being attraction to the opposite sex, whatever opposite means. (laughs) Um, And so because, and so I want to say from the outset that this conversation will have that bent because that's who's represented sitting at this table, which is not to say that there aren't other experiences, but I don't want to strain to make those other experiences and then it's just like a fake conversation. So I want to put it out there for the audience so that we can engage it as a a question and something that we're thinking about actively to trouble that water. Given that we're talking about this, I'm curious about this whole question that often arises when women get to a certain age, which is about invisibility. And the invisibility is clearly linked to this idea of attractiveness, right? And that as soon as you hit, I don't know, it feels like it gets younger and younger, but maybe it's because I'm getting older and older. Um, So let's call it 50, because I'm not quite there yet. (laughs) Then you become invisible. Has that been your experience, this idea that suddenly there's an age you hit and you become invisible to the mysterious opposite sex or whoever? My mum died earlier this year and she was 97 when she died. And she said to me that the biggest change she felt about getting old was nobody noticed little old ladies like her. And... She And you'll notice my hair is going grey, and I'm going grey now because my mum's gone. Because she insisted all three of us keep our hair 
the colour was. And we all had very dark hair with auburn tinges, all, th all three daughters. And you have got to stay, and she used to use the word visible. And so when, I, when, you, were, when you sent me the little thing and I saw that, it made me think of my mum, you know. But I have to say, this morning I did a thing on power and influence, and many of you would know who I am. And I don't feel invisible. I often people, people stop me, people in fact, a colleague stopped me just a minute ago to say, how, how, how are you? And I don't feel that invisibility. And I think my type A personality being what it is, and I'm not sure, I won't speak for Caroline, I have no trouble saying, excuse me, here I am. Now, of course, I'm white. And, you know, I'm South African, so I come, you know, I came into the world with an alpha view um, of, because of my, of my heritage of, where, of who my, particularly my father was. And, um, and I think there is something in that visibility thing which does, trans, does go across women. The, the group this morning were very clear about invisibility. And yet they were all beautiful, beautiful young women under 40. And I thought, how could you possibly think you are invisible? So I think it's about how you feel, Sasanke, and not how people see you. Because any of them walking anywhere would have turned the head of everybody they saw. But they feel invisible in their communities and in their workplaces. Now, why is that? Yeah. Interesting. Caroline, what's your... Um, I think, I guess, I'm quite used to been invisible um, at one level. I remember quite often going out for different events with John, my husband, and meeting people. Um, you know, it's not like it, there were a room full of people of colour there. I would often be the only one. And yet, when you meet the same people again later, they pretend like they've never met you. In fact, you bump into people regularly that you've met at all sorts of events, but they walk straight past you because, you know, firstly, I don't think, you know, I was just an appendage to start with, and then I'm not really worth worrying about. So I think I've kind of decided later in life that I am going to be visible in a different way by doing what I do at the moment through the Center for Stories. And I actually don't think... I would have been able to do that at a younger age. I think I needed quite a lot of experiences to get to this point. Yeah, and I don't, I certainly don't feel invisible at the moment. Um, and I guess maybe I am, might be invisible to the people I don't really care about. <laughs> <laughs> so this, I think there's something really interesting about this question about class and visibility and about race and visibility. And I'm sure there's lots of other, there's lots of other ways we could think about it, lots of other isms. Um, but the notion of the confidence, uh, the self-confidence to deal with what are sort of bigger structural isms against you is interesting. And it ties in, I think again, with style. So if you are in a position where people might dismiss you because Jane, you are in an academic setting in which actually in the area, in your area of, of study, you know, in STEM, there are not a whole lot of women who are, you know, in that room, then style takes on a kind of different meaning. Uh, and is it a form of resistance 
or is it a form of fitting in? Like how, do you want to think about that aloud a little bit? Like how you think you may have been um, consciously or subconsciously using style in, your, in the settings in which you have kind of been operating? Protection. So get dressed in the morning and particularly in the work environment, I would always dress in a very particular way. And I think I've always used it as part of who I am when I'm outside. Can, um, you, can you say a little bit more about what that dressing looks like? So, professionally, I would never wear a low-cut dress because I often worked in places that were, were very mixed. Um, I was very conscious, particularly when I started... When, in fact, when I came to Australia, I was very conscious when I was at... My first job was at UWA, and um, we had these people, people come and visit, and they were from, it doesn't matter, the country. But I had bare arms, and I remember feeling that I was offending them because I seemed underdressed. And so, and I learned that, for, and because it, you know, it was 45 degrees, there's no bloody air conditioning in Winthrop Hall, we were dying. Um, but from then on, one of the things that I, I actually petitioned said, you've got to have air conditioning because we've got to work in clothes that are suited for the multicultural environments and the kind of people we all meet. And, and that, it wasn't about style. It was about respect, actually. But I think style matters. Style matters to me, I, um, the way I would look. And I, I do love clothes, so it's a very easy, it's a very easy pick for me to, to like the things that I like. I don't care what other people like, but I know what I like. And, um, and then using it for my, for my professional persona and the person for people I don't know. Now, people who know me well would know that, you know, I can wear a crappy T-shirt when I'm with friends. That's another thing. But I would never do Impossible that Impossible to imagine, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> um, same question to you, Caroline. So you're in, often in settings in which um, either people continually forget having seen you or, as is very common in Perth, people think you're the other brown person that they just met last week when you're not that person. Um, so whether it's invisibility or <laughs> blurring into one another, <laughs> however you phrase it, what do you think about then when it comes to this question of style? Is style protection, as Jane has just think? Or are you using style differently there to stand out? What's the style doing? I'm definitely not using style to stand out, as everyone at the centre knows. I don't like to stand out, so no, I don't, I'm not using style to stand out. I'm using style maybe more as a comfort to myself and more because... You know, I, I'm not a formal person. I think I'm using style for other people to feel comfortable with me as well. Um, but sometimes I use um, style to send a bit of a message, and I'm going to give a little example here. I was invited to uh, become a member of Mellow House. Some of you know what Mellow House is. I... And so we were invited to... Sorry, just for context, it's a private members club, club yeah. here in, in the city. So we were, I was invited to go for like an open house. So I said to Sir Sonke, come on, let's go. We'll probably be the only two brown people there, but let's go and have a bit of fun. So we went. And Sir Sonke had no idea what Perth society was like at that moment. 
uh, because it was, it was like a real society thing. So I kind of had an inkling of what people might wear. So I decided I was going to wear my jeans and a silk shirt. So I rocked up on, in the lift and Sasanke put, I should have worn Sasanke, it was in her work clothes and we got in the lift and there were all these people who were all so dressed up. It was amazing. It was like, you know, you were going to something really special. So Sonke just looked at me and said, you didn't tell me this was going to happen. And I said, no, but, you know, does it matter? Like, you know, we're going to stand out anyway, so it doesn't really matter what we wear. Um, so I think sometimes I use it, you know, to send a bit of a message. Um, absolutely. And I wasn't trying to send that message. I'm not as brave. <laughs> So I was just mistakenly send, sending a message. Um, so there is a new generation for whom respectability politics is like a very big thing, right? So the notion of um, dressing um, to be respectable is um, like not a good thing, as my daughter would tell me. And I remember a few years ago, not would have been five or six years ago during the Obama term, Michelle Obama got, you know, she was, I don't know what she was oh, doing. She was at the tank top yeah. and it was the bare arms and it caused this like massive, right? A bare arm thing. And it caused this massive, you know, sort of storm, um, you know, in the U S and part of the pushback was, um, why, why, why should I respect the sensibilities of someone else? So I want to, explore that a little bit with you, Jane, because I think the multicultural angle that you gave is really powerful and important, particularly in a monocultural society like Australia's. And I wonder where the line, though, gets drawn with what it means to be a woman who's able to occupy space without everything we do always being sexualized. Yeah, right. Yeah, interesting. Well, I think particularly in the work, so I'm not talking about home now, I'm talking in the public space where you operate or work. I think giving respect to who you meet and their values and culture. Now, not race. I'm not talking about racism now. I'm talking about the normal norm values of who we are. It does matter a bit. So if I'm meeting people from, a, from a, a different culture, from another country who are coming to our workplace to find out information, I'm going to be respectful. And part of that, being a woman, is the way I would dress. So I always wear, you know, I would never... I remember one of our one of our famous ministers often wore very very short miniskirts, and um, and I always thought that made some of the people talking to her quite uncomfortable. Did that help her cause? Yes or no? And should she care? She shouldn't care, but wouldn't she want to help her cause? And so I think neutralising some of that sexuality with cultures who are unused to that se that the brutal sexuality that Australians can have you know, on a beach with no clothes on, um, is, is useful. Now, should you, should you be forced to do it? No. But do you, do you want to get what you want done, done? Do I want to sell, you know, University of Western Australia when I was a deacon? You know, we absolutely went for the international market. I went to great pains to show what our values were. But then I stayed respectful to their values. You know, they wanted their young daughters to come and be educated at Deakin and they wanted them to be able to wear their hijab 
Absolutely. If that's what the child, wa the daughter wanted, you know, we never said you had to wear your hijab. But being respectful about being able to do those things, whereas why would you say you've got to look like us, you know, wear a bikini on the beach if that's not how you feel comfortable? And I think we don't, we don't have enough bandwidth for difference. It's exactly like Caroline being ignored. Um, I think there's not enough bandwidth for the diversity of personality, of character, of background, of education, of the way we dress and the way we speak. And the person who enunciated that best was Julia Gillard, when she was abused because of her big bottom. Now, why we would want a prime minister with a small <laughs> bottom as against a big bottom has always confused me, but her bottom was a source of intense interest from the press, if you remember, she didn't dress it properly, she shouldn't wear trousers, her shoes looked ugly against her bottom and all of that. And I remember once in a meeting seeing her and said to her, you know, how do you feel about that? Oh, she says, you know, I look at my bottom and I'm disappointed. So, <laughs> and that's all she said. And I thought, well, good for you. you know, I don't care what they say. It's bad enough having, to, you know, blah, blah. So I think, that, you know, this whole style thing does matter. Um, it, mat it does matter in the world and how we deal with it. What worries me is how we educate the next generation in the vicious social media that we live in to cope with it because we didn't have to deal with that. You know, you'd get whistled at, you know, before you became invisible mm. and you just walked on. Whereas these days you have to deal with bloody social media, which is shocking. Whistled at before you became invisible. That's in, in, an interesting yes. comment. Caroline, what's your sense of this idea of how you balance or think about and maybe balance is the wrong word, how you think about this question of offend, offense versus your right to uh, present yourself however you please. I guess having grown up in Singapore, it's something that you just grew up understanding that you know you had to respect other cultures and I think also the other thing that my mum instilled in us was if you're going somewhere to someone's house you should dress out of respect for the fact they've gone through a lot of trouble to put on a meal for you or to a wedding or whatever. So I think it's always been that it's not just about you. It's also about the people you're interacting with. And I think that's a really important thing for all of us to keep in mind. Um, so I, I, I want to go back to this question about... Uh, um, aging and, in, and visibility versus invisibility. And I'm going to quote the um, famously crotchety Helen Garner. Bad-tempered. Bad-tempered um, Helen Garner, um, who had one of, you know, if you haven't read this essay, it is, you know, absolutely worth reading. It's called uh, Age, Age of Insult. Um, it came out a few years ago, and it's Helen Garner sort of publicly reckoning with what it means to be um, a writer who is a woman who is in her 70s now. Um, and this, this paragraph from there is just gorgeous and I'd love both of your responses to it. <laughs> I had known for years, of course, that beyond a certain age, women become invisible in public spaces. The famous erotic gaze is withdrawn. You are no longer, in the eyes of the world, a sexual being. In my experience, though, this forlornness is a passing phase. The sadness of the loss fades and fades. You pass through loneliness and out into the balmy freedom from the heavy labor of self-presentation. Oh, the relief. You have nothing to prove. You can saunter about the world in overalls. 
Because a lifetime as a woman has taught you to listen, to know how to strike up long, meaty conversations with strangers on trams and on trains. What's your response to this idea that becoming older is also a freedom? I think so. Um, I think that a lot of the confidence that I have now is as a result of the fact that I've come to become, have become a woman of a certain age. Um, and I think that I'm far more comfortable with who I am now than I was many years ago in terms of, you know, just understanding what's important and the whole thing with relationships and values are really, you know, very much part of who I am. And I think all that, you know, we were talking a lot about how we look and why clothes are important, but at the end of the day, you know, they fall into insignificance in terms of what you want to leave behind as your legacy, I think. Beautiful. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would broadly agree with that. Although, I rem you, know, you know, when you're 16, you know, and I think, so what is good about being postmenopausal? Because it's a home, you know, your hormones go down. Whereas when you're 16, the thought of not being attractive... I think is much higher, but I can't remember that That's I... That's right, such a long time ago. It was ago. such a long time ago. <laughs> I can't remember how much it worried me, you know. Um, but I do remember being very particular about the things I wore, and so it must have had something to do mm. with sexuality and attractiveness, and when you think about it, and I think that must... How could I have been so crazy? Because the liberation of being... Uh, and I don't think it's invisibility. You know, I don't mind people not yeah. seeing me, because if I want to say something, I'll just go and say it. Um, but then that's a different kind of confidence, which mm. is, and so that what I'm getting to is wisdom and experience and wisdom, and that you learn things in the world and you know who you want to be with, and, and you don't care about everybody else. You don't have to be the most fashionable person or the, you know, the whatever it is. Um, so I think age tempers all that into the things that matter around you, which of course go to the people you love and the things that you most want to do with those people. You know, it becomes a narrower, smaller world yeah. as you get older. And that's a great thing because you can spend more time there. And I think in terms of my style, the only people who at the moment matter to me are my grandchildren. <laughs> and, you know, I want to look stylish for them, really. <laughs> and um, obviously they've observed because in my birthday card, my six-year-old and four-year-old grandchildren wrote, we love your cuddles, your cooking and your rings, Nana. And I thought, oh my God, they noticed my ring. So it was, obviously they do take notice of what I wear. So I think they're definitely the ones that matter in terms of my style. I'm curious about, um, so you know, there the, are these um, uh, grandmas of Instagram. Um, they're like incredibly stylish women who are always striding across the street in Manhattan, you know. Six-inch six inch yeah, stilettos. With Have stilettos and, like, the hair is always immaculate and, white. like, you know, all this stuff. Yes, and they are mainly white, even though black don't crack. And actually, if we're going to talk about who looks better and better and better as we get older. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Um, but anyway. <laughs> None of it matters, but anyway. Um, but the, so the, the grandmas of, 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 of Instagram um, are interesting to me because in some ways um, what you get is like this apex of uh, 
the kind of women we all are, which is incredibly privileged women who have the capacity to extend our visibility you know, further and further because we can go to the gym and we can eat well and we can, you know, all the, all the things that come with, you know, being of a certain class. And I do wonder what, um, how you think about and what responsibility you feel as, you know, women who are a certain age and actually have incredible platforms. And I wonder how you think about the, the increasing invisibility of other kinds of women who are getting older. And we know about all the statistics about, you know, older women in Australia being the fastest, you know, uh, growth rate in terms of homelessness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wonder whether you've thought about that and if and what thoughts you might have about that. Yeah, both of you, either one of you. So Helen Mirren, um, who's an actress, said that she worried about having facelifts and augmentation because her face was her means of earning a living. And it wasn't vanity that made her do it. It was making sure that she remained attractive to the people who employed her to do the things that she did on movies. And I always thought that was one of the best justifications I ever heard for someone who had sold herself on the way she looked. You know, incredibly sexy, you know, energetic, healthy woman. Um, so she's, she's the, the, the exception, I think, um, for me. Um, all those ones racing around, those grandmas on Instagram, they're all millionaires, and they're all wearing, you know, 600 pair Manalo Blahnik shoes, you know, from Sex in the City and that sort of thing. So I discount them. I don't think they're real grandmas of Instagram. I don't know. I think grandmas of Instagram are wearing orange shoes and rushing home to their grandchildren <laughs> later. Right. I would like to be Being rushing home to my grandchild, but of course he's been away two years. He's two years away from me because we live in lockdown and he's in the UK. So I think it is quite an interesting thing but I'd pay less attention. I think it's a very privileged group of people who live in the stratosphere who worry about those things to the same extent. Will I always be stylish, want to wear nice things that I like? Absolutely, to my dying day. My mother, you know, four days before she got ill, was still dressing up, putting in beautiful earrings and nice trousers and making sure when she came downstairs. And we knew she was very, very sick which said, I can't be bothered putting in the earrings. And she lived in the UK, and my sister phoned me and said, I think she's really, really sick today. And it was all about, I can't be bothered. And it was the first time ever, and she lost that sense of, this is who I am, and curled up and died quite quickly after that. It was quite interesting, quite an interesting thing about her conceding on her physical appearance. Yeah, I looked at some of those um, grandmas on Instagram who were, you know, the reason why they were posting all those photos of themselves in their $2,000 coats and $500 haircuts was because they didn't want to be invisible and they wanted the younger generation to know there was love. And I kind of wondered whether that message was really getting across the younger people and whether they just looked at that Instagram post and liked what she was wearing. And when they walked on the street and ran into a real grandma, whether it would make any difference. And I actually, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I doubt whether it has made any difference in terms of other grandmas on streets wearing normal clothes, being homeless, would, remain, would be visible to anyone who's w 
following the grandmas on Instagram. And isn't the thing that we should be worrying about the rising homelessness of women in Australia? I think that is one of, one of the most shocking, you know, for such a rich place that women end up with nothing. And the country carries on. Yeah. Absolutely. And in some ways that's, um, yeah, I think this question about how we carry our power and style as an embodiment of our capacity to um, present ourselves, um, express ourselves, uh, the enormous privilege that we carry to be able to do that and then to think about how, um, how to extend that, um, how to use your visibility as a platform to enhance the visibility of other people is, yeah, I think is the challenge for all of us all the time, yeah. Um, any, any style tips that you have that you have always, because this is like the story, Center for Stories edition of um, Glamour magazine. Um, so I'm very curious on any sort of style tips, style hacks. Jane, I know I've never seen you without that perfect ready orange lip. Is that like a signature thing? Um, three or four style tips that you have observed your entire life and that you will not, till your dying day, you will not let these style tips go? Yeah, lippy, I think. Um, tights. I, um, my, my, the last job I had, my chief of staff used to sneer, you know, you always wear tights. I never go bare-legged to work, even in 40-degree heat. And I think it, it was just something I did. I felt more complete. I don't know, you know, women of a certain age, I think it's my generation. I see you nodding. Um, that was the second thing. And then, um, that's about it, I think. Earrings, I don't, I don't wear earrings. I, I always used to not go to work. I always had to wear earrings to work. Then I was complete. That was the thing. The kids always said, Mummy, always put, you haven't got your earrings in. And I'd put them in and go to work. And, and the hair, and the, and the, and the, and the colour. I find yeah, that such yeah. an interesting uh, thing that uh, what's possible once someone who we love, who cared about a particular element of our style is gone. Yeah. And so yeah, letting yeah, go of yeah. the hair colour. And then I've gone, yeah. So my mother didn't want us to be grey and we always listened to, my mother was a strong woman. But now she's not there. So my sisters are quite alarmed. So they've not gone grey yet. But we Zoom and the first thing they say is, put your head down and I have to show <laughs> And they all both go, oh, and that's as far as they've got. But I reckon, just leave it a while. <laughs> They'll be joining you. There'll be three of us. Yeah, and yeah. for you, Caroline, your grey is such a distinctive yeah. part of your style. Definitely. Be natural, I say. I've never, ever done anything to my hair, never put any colour through it. And I think that growing old gracefully is a really important thing to be proud of who you are at whatever age you are. The other tip I have is have a donut every week if you can. <laughs> <laughs> the staff at the centre are cracking up there because I just love my donuts and there has been a fantastic shop. It's opened three doors down from the centre. <laughs> and I say to her, goes, I think it's time for a donut. And, they, and of course, they're worried about their figures, so they won't have a donut. And I go, well, what the hell? You know, at my age, why should I have to worry about those sorts of things? I'm not having the donuts. So, yeah. So I think, yeah, go grey naturally and look, just, you know, keep your exercise going. But don't, don't uh, 
kind of stint on what you really enjoy. Yes. <laughs> what a great place to end. Logan, is it time? Is it, is it time? Thank you so much, um, everyone. Um, style, as, um, style as power, style as resistance, style as protection. Um, but most importantly, I feel like style as visibility. Um, so thank you for listening and coming, and thank you to our fantastic speakers. Sisonke, what are your style tips? I'm dying. Look at this stylish human sitting in front of us. We've got time. Hats, I want to hear them. Hats. Uh, earrings, kind of. I sort of go in and out with the earrings and then a power red or pink or orange. Something bright. And then I'm African, so I have no choice but to, like, overdo the style. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. This is the end Thanks of for listening. To listen to more stories and conversations or to make a donation to the Centre for Stories, head to centreforstories.com.